If you would stand with me in the honor of in honor of the reading of God's word and take your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter one. For those of you who uh, did not come with a Bible this morning, there's one that's been provided for you in the seat in front of you. Um, and in those Bibles, the ones that are in the chairs, we will uh, uh, be on page 530. If you are here and you don't have a Bible, uh, we want you to take that one home with you. We want you to have a Bible. That's really important to us. And so you can receive that as our gift to you um, and uh, to just take that home with you. Um, so last week, Pastor Non preached about missions, and he went through several uh, scriptures in the Bible that help formulate what we call the Great Commission of Jesus. And, and this morning, I'm going to focus on two of the passages that he used, one right now and then one a little later in the message. But we're just going to read this morning one single verse and then kind of ponder it for a little bit. And so that verse in Acts chapter 1 is verse 8. And here's what we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Over the past three weeks, uh, we've described to you what the church as a living organism that God has built what it, what it does to fulfill its purpose. And we've described three ways in which the church does that. First, it does it by preaching. And by preaching, I mean verbally proclaiming the good news of how Jesus redeemed fallen humanity from, by his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection from all of our sin and all of our death. Second, we learn that the church fulfills the Great Commission by providing, and that's by bringing glory to God through acts of mercy and kindness to everyone, but especially to the body of Christ, to those who are of the household of faith. And third, as Pastor Don preached last week, we talked about staying on mission, and that means to expand the kingdom both at home and abroad, uh, utilizing both verbal proclamation and merciful provision. And so my goal today is to harmonize all of this like a symphony conductor would do with all of the instruments in the orchestra. And I'm going to do that using, as I said earlier, two particular passages that Don shared with us last week, one of which we already read. Uh, when I worked in radio, some of you may not know that I was in radio for several years. I, I worked both on air and then the business side of radio. And when I did that, I learned that a good interview, and uh, Austin, you can check me on this, but a good interview or a commercial always answers the basic questions. The basic questions, of course, being when, who, where, why, what, how. Those, that makes a good interview. If you leave any of that out, then you don't have enough information. And answering these foundational questions is also helpful for us in understanding what the church is to do as she waits for the fullness of God's kingdom to come. Do you know that this as it is, is it as it will always be? Did you know that? That Jesus, who has already inaugurated his kingdom by his death and resurrection, by his ascension to the Father, is pro has promised us that a day is coming when he shall fully make all things new. We'll be the recipients of a, of a new heavens and a brand new earth. Man, you got to get excited about that. Come on. It's going to get better than this, folks. It's going to get better. But what are we supposed to do while we're waiting for that? Well, we, we, we begin to consider what it is that we're doing with this passage from Acts. 
this one we read earlier. And and this passage is pulled from the various instructions that Jesus gave to his apostles before he ascended to the Father. Verse 8 in particular that we read, it helps us to answer the first three questions of when, of who, and where. The first thing we read in that passage is these words, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. We're told that we receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Now, although the Holy Spirit was dramatically manifest in the initial outpouring on the church of the day, on the day of Pentecost, the Bible is also very clear that if you are his, you can be confident that you have received the Holy Spirit. There's nothing else for you to wait on. There's not something else that that is yet to be done. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, you have received the Holy Spirit. If you you are, are insistent on believing the scripture, you must believe this truth. And we know that if the Holy Spirit has been given to us, that he's been given to us on purpose and for a specific purpose. It was not an accident, and it wasn't for nothing. It wasn't for us to feel better about ourselves. It was because of, it was for a very specific reason. Now, the Bible gives us many reasons that the Spirit has been given. And maybe someday we'll do a whole series about that. But the, the verse that we looked at today speaks of a kingdom-building power that the Holy Spirit brings to the church. While we're told that the Spirit brings power when He comes, we have to ask the question, who is the recipient of this power? It goes on to say that the power comes when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So we must ask, if we look at this, who who does this you refer to? Does it refer to the apostles who he was speaking to that day only or to additional people as well? Well, we have to immediately rule out that Jesus was speaking only to the apostles. Why? It, because there's a number of specific reasons. After the death of Judas, remember he killed himself in his, in his remorse for betraying Christ. After his death, there were only 11 apostles left. But Acts 1.15 tells us that there were 120 people gathered in Jerusalem in the upper room waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And when the Spirit finally is poured out, Acts 2.4 tells us that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Not the 11, but the 120 were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Furthermore... After this outpouring, after Peter preaches the gospel to him, Peter tells the assembled crowd of thousands, he says these words. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive, now who's he talking to? The thousands. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It gets even better. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, how many of you have experienced the joy of knowing that the Lord God has called you to himself? Raise your hand. So you know what the conclusion of that is? Holy Spirit's for you. The Holy Spirit is for you. This promise has been given to you. You are recipients of the Holy Spirit. So we can conclude that the power from the Holy Spirit to be witnesses of the worth and the power and the presence of Christ is available to the entire body of redeemed people and not just the select few individuals. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. This means you and I 
This means that we have been empowered to be sworn witnesses of all the glories of Jesus and to point to all he's done in us personally. I asked you this a couple weeks ago. How many here have a story to tell? How many of you here have a, have a, a memory of a time when you didn't know Jesus, when, when you had not been found by the Lord, and, and, and you, you saw the dramatic difference that trusting in him and putting your faith in him made? Do you have a story like that? Well, then you're a sworn witness. You're a sworn witness to what the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus does. So, we've talked about a couple of the questions. Where does all this take place? Well, Jesus says in this passage we read, he says, In Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, notice that Jesus didn't say to just be saved and be filled with the Holy Spirit and then head out randomly and start spreading the good news. He gave them a pattern. And you can imagine a set of concentric circles with Jerusalem right in the center as the bullseye. So what does all this mean? He said to start in Jerusalem. What does this mean to us? See, Jerusalem was home. It was familiar. Here... At Jerusalem is where they would have the nearness and support of each other. But it also meant that here they would face hostility as they swam against the tide of their culture. And all of us have been called to start in our own version of Jerusalem. Often, new believers, it's so exciting when people come to faith in the Lord Jesus. And oftentimes, new believers... We'll talk about the wonderful things they want to do for God. They, they have big visions. And man, we're not going to do anything to squelch those visions. But they have neglected, for fear or intimidation, they've neglected their homes and the most familiar places in their lives. Have you told, let me ask you all this, no matter how long you've been saved, have you told the good news to your family? Have you been a faithful witness to the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ at work or at school? Have you been scorned and mocked for his name, for being a witness of him right here in your hometown? One thing that I've found to be invariably true is that you will not do in the ends of the earth what you are unwilling to do at home. At home, you have the connection of brothers and sisters who love you. You may not have that the further out that you travel. Next, Jesus told them to be witnesses in all Judea. And this speaks about our individual cultural context. Judea was home base for the Jews. And Jesus, at his ascension, was speaking only to ethnic Jews. There weren't Italians and Mexicans and, you know, Chinese people there. There were only ethnic Jews. He was talking to ethnic Jews. And he tells them to go to all Judea. He was speaking of the home base for the Jews. So the question that I have for you What is your Judea? What is your culture? What is the the thing, not just your home base, but your culture surrounding you? Do you witness the glories of Jesus in your culture? Or has your life been fully absorbed by your culture? Does your life shout that Jesus is an accessory in your life, like a pair of shoes or a nice new purse or a hat? Or does your life shout that he is your one and only priority? What does your life say to your culture? If I didn't know you, what would I learn about your most deeply held values from your Facebook posts, from your Twitter feed? 
When your candidate wins or loses Tuesday night, whichever the case may be, how is that going to affect you? Will it, will it shoot you into waves of rapture and joy or plummet you into the depths of despair? Or will you trust fully in the one of whom Isaiah says that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end? Would your kids say that Scripture, if I were to interview them, would they say that Scripture and church life and prayer matter more in your home or even as much as television, as the Internet, as jobs, as sports? If I can be really honest with you, I'm I'm gravely concerned that many more believers have been changed by the culture instead of being ones who influence the culture. But we mustn't be satisfied with this if we really want to be true followers of Jesus. We have to be at constant war with our own cultural idolatries. And the live, and we have to live lives that declare that there is no one above or even beside Jesus Christ. That he is alone in his glory, alone in his worthiness to be praised. Next, Christ calls the disciples, and this is where it gets really hairy. Christ calls disciples to be his bold witnesses in the power of the Spirit in places where the reaction to them is guaranteed to be hostile. Guaranteed. The relationship between Samaria and Judea was entirely acrimonious. Entirely. But Jesus, who for three years now had been telling his followers to love their enemies, now tells them how to do it practically. Go. Be witnesses. Tell those who are most hostile to you. Tell them. Tell them that God loves them, the good news of his love. And and, and tell it to those who are most scary and seem to least deserve it. What does a Samaritan look like to you in 2018 in your own culture? What does it look like? Is he or she a gang member, a prisoner, an ex-convict, a drug addict, an alcoholic? a homosexual or transgendered person, a Republican, a Democrat, the very rich or the wretchedly poor, a Muslim, a Mormon, a Buddhist, an atheist. What does the Samaritan look like to you? See, we're called to love and to serve all of the above, every one of them, and everyone I didn't mention also. We're not to forget ever for a moment what we've been saved from ourselves. There may be some good little church boys and girls here today, but how many of you can raise your hand and say, I've been saved from some stuff? Anybody? Listen, folks, I've been saved from some stuff. I know who I was, and I haven't forgotten. So how dare I cast a finger or a a gaze of judgment at anyone who's in the middle of their stuff? Because I know, I know, I know the saving power of Jesus Christ. I know it. We should never, ever dilute even the hardest truths of the gospel, but we must also never fail to speak and share our lives in a spirit of love and sacrifice and humility to the worst among us. Lastly, Jesus tells us to witness even to the ends of the earth. Throughout Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, the disciples are to maintain a global perspective. They're not to forget either those that have not heard of him, or as we saw in the video, they're Christian brothers and sisters who are suffering around the world. This means, listen to me carefully, this is the crux of everything I have to say to you this morning. This means that the church is to be always going, praying, preaching, 
providing the means necessary for the proclamation of the gospel to the farthest and most forgotten peoples of the entire earth. That is what we exist to do. We've talked about the when, the who, the where, but what about the why, the what, and the how? And we'll have to look at another passage that Don shared with us for that. Matthew 28, 18, all authority. Jesus is speaking again right before his ascension. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. First, let's answer the question of why from Jesus' words. Why do we do this preaching, providing, proclaiming, all of these things? Why do we do it? Because Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. With the cry of it is finished from the cross, Jesus has been anointed the undisputed king of the universe. He is not, listen to me, this is a common misconception. Jesus right now is enthroned. He is not locked in mortal combat with the world, the devil, or even your own flesh. He is already the supreme and sovereign one. He reigns, he rules, he's the king, he's in charge right now. He's not waiting for a future date, he's already the king. Help me out, folks. It's in that authority, his authority as king, that you and I are sent out as his witnesses to win for him the reward of his suffering. We go because he commanded it, and we succeed because he has decreed our success. He also promised his constant presence. What more could you want? I'm with you always to the end of the age. Wow, wow. Will you remember that when you go to work tomorrow, when you go to school, that he is with you always? Even to the end of the age that he's going to school with you. He's going to work with you. He's going to be taking care of those little babies with you. He's going to be dealing with your elderly parents with you. He's going to be wherever you are doing what you're doing because he has promised his constant presence to you. But what the question arises, what has he given us the authority to do in his name, empowered by his constant presence? He tells us, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This has been something that the church over the past 150 years has, by and large, especially in the West, gotten horribly, horribly wrong many, many times. See, our goal is so much more than to get people to pray a sinner's prayer or to somehow clean up their morality, we are to be after a much higher goal than that. A much higher goal. We're not to be satisfied until people become complete, total, dedicated, sold-out followers of Jesus Christ. It's called a disciple. The definition of disciple is actually a learner or a pupil these are people that are learning what it means to love Jesus, and they're learning every day. They don't sign a contract one day and never think about it again. The, the pursuit of a disciple is daily. It's daily learning what it means to love, serve, cherish, follow Jesus. Jesus told people around him to learn of him. Disciple-making, if that is the goal of the church, disciple-making facilitates people's ability to learn of Jesus. 
But how do we persuade people to become followers of Christ? Jesus gives us two ways. First of all, may it seem a little confusing to you. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is not suggesting, hear me clearly, this is not suggesting that baptizing someone automatically makes them a disciple. But the New Testament teaches that no one, get this clear, no one is baptized into a vacuum. Uh, People often ask me, will you baptize me? And I say, why? What for? Because the Bible says that we are baptized for specific reasons. Romans 6 says, and, and Colossians 2 say, we're baptized into Christ, sharing in his death and resurrection. We're baptized into the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12. We put on Christ through baptism in Galatians 3. All of this is suggesting, listen to me, that baptism represents an intimate connection with Christ but also a deep spiritual unity with the church. That's important. That when people are baptized, they're not getting baptized to check something off their spiritual list. They're saying, hey, this, the church, is what Jesus is doing in the earth right now, and I want to be a part of it. That's what baptism says. It is not popular to say, but you cannot be a disciple of Christ apart from the church. You can't. People say, well, I love Jesus. I just don't love the church. I want to stay out there. Well, then you don't love Jesus because Jesus loves the church. You hear me? Jesus loves the church. Listen, some of you are rotten and Jesus loves you. You got a preacher up here that's pretty darn rotten. And if he can love me, you got to know he can love you. I assure you of that. I promise you that. He loves the church. With all of her flaws and imperfections, he loves her. And so, so to follow Christ means joining his church, being a part of, being baptized into his church. Baptism joins people to the community of the cross, not a religious organization, but to the living, breathing, progressing body of the risen Christ. It's in this context of the church that the second thing that we're called to do in order to make disciples happens. He says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. The church becomes vitally important in this endeavor. It's where we gather to learn what it is that Christ commanded. It's where we encourage each other with the word and we share our lives with one another in sacrifice and service. So, here, so we've discussed the when, the who, the where, the why, the what, and the how of our preaching. If I can answer one last question, it would be this. Why does any of this even matter? Why does it even matter? Many churches have replaced preaching, providing, and missions with marketing, gimmicks, pragmatism in order to grow. And why not? Why not? Doesn't that make more sense in the 21st century anyway? I mean, come on. It's not... This isn't first century Jerusalem. Why don't we use a little, a little you know, pizzazz to get some people in here? If you look at the methods of some of the largest churches in America, it seems to be working, right? But my concern is that when I look at the Bible, it seems to be way more concerned with proclaiming, with reaching, with touching, with relating, with, with all of those things than it is with promoting, with advertising, with enticing. Therefore, I conclude that a church that is truly pleasing to God must be a going and ascending church. It must be. It's incumbent upon it. It has to be that kind of a church. I fear that the last day will reveal that many more of us could have gone to our culture or even to the nations, but we were so consumed by our lust for status and stuff that we crammed our fingers in our ears so that we wouldn't hear the cries of a perishing world. And that's really not meant as a guilt trip. I promise you that. 
But have you ever, and I mean this, and I mean this sincerely, have you ever asked God if you were to go? Have you ever asked the question? Have you ever had the courage to even pose the thought to God to say, am I to go? Or maybe do something domestically, assist with a church plant, things like that. Things that are expanding the kingdom of God outward. Now you may think, well, I'm unqualified to do any of that stuff. I I have a secular degree in engineering or marketing. But the fact is, if we're talking about the nations, this is the truth. I think Don even mentioned this last week. This is the truth that if you try to get a missions visa... Most places in the world will not approve that. They've had enough of that. They've seen abuses by some missionaries, and they're not going to approve that. But they would love to have your practical skills, an engineer, marketing, whatever it is. They'd love to have your practical skills to help their country grow, to to, um, help them stabilize in their infrastructure and things like that. And that gives you a great opportunity to be a covert missionary in the nations. Other things that you could do, I know Judy's made an appeal for this several times. There are, there are because we have a Division I university in our city, there are tons of international students that are flooding in every year to, to Texas Tech, and we have a great opportunity. And Judy can even help you with that if you want to say, hey, I want to give my life to some international students. We know Jordan and Rebecca have done that a little bit, and, and if there, there are ways that you can do that. There are ways. You don't have to. This isn't about buying a pith helmet and going to the jungles of Africa with machete and trying to reach some naked tribesmen. Those days are over. It's a much more advanced uh, uh, form of missions now. And anybody who really has the desire can do it no matter what your qualifications. If we say amen, we got to go, right? But for most of us, none of that is the issue. For most of us, we simply have never considered it. We've never even thought about it. Or else we're so neck deep in our careers and in other pursuits that Jesus just has to get in line behind all of the other stuff and wait for his turn as if it will ever, ever, ever come. But where this morning? Where are the obedient? Where are the passionate? Where are the ones that would despise everything this world offers in order to make Jesus famous? Where are we? Where are we? Who is willing to suffer with the ones we saw in that video today for the glory of Jesus Christ? Now, I'm not suggesting, don't get nervous, not suggesting that everyone's called to go to Pakistan or Nigeria. I'm not suggesting any of that. But just that many of us are probably neglecting God's call to go somewhere. For Northridge Life Church, going can look just like this going a hundred yards that way across the street to help at Northridge Elementary School. You can go thousands of places without ever getting a passport, but you gotta go. You gotta go. I'm not suggesting that everyone's supposed to go, but if you're not called to go, if you're not called to go somewhere foreign, somewhere around the world, or even you know on the other side of town, if you're not called to that and you're convinced of it, all of us are definitely called to passionately pray and to give to the global cause of, of reaching this world for Jesus Christ. Every one of us, no exceptions. Hebrews 3, 3 says, 13.3 rather says this, Remember those who are in prison. Remember them. 
as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the same body. Often we live blissfully unaware of people like Azia Bibi. Some of you might have heard that name. Azia Bibi is a Christian woman in Pakistan. We just saw the video about Pakistan. And she has spent almost nine years on death row because of a trumped-up charge of blasphemy against the prophet Muhammad. This week, Azia was released from prison. And that sounds like great news. It really does. And I hope it is good news. But the fact of the matter is, as soon as she was released, riots broke out all across Pakistan. This is a almost a peasant woman. Shouldn't even garner any attention. But because the international press has given so much attention to this case, when she was released, there were, there were riots all over Pakistan. And, and radical Islamists were demanding that she be hung publicly because of her blasphemy. The government of Pakistan, complicating matters, will not let her leave the country. She has been, her her husband and her children are now residing in Great Britain, and they will not let her join them, which means that Azia Bibi faces the very real possibility after being acquitted of all charges of being murdered by an angry mob in the streets of Pakistan. Let that sink in for a minute. We are called to pray for brothers and sisters like Azia and not to forget them. But oftentimes, if we're honest, if I'm honest, this is not a, an accusation as much as it is a share my confessed sin here with me. Oftentimes, I'm, I'm way more concerned about the accuracy of my Starbucks order or what's going to be streaming this month on Netflix or even the comforts that can be afforded to me by my own church. Approaching church with a what's in it for me kind of mentality. I'm concerned far more about all of those things than simply to care for my brothers and sisters who are suffering right now, many under threat of death, just for loving the same Lord that I do. We all have a role to play in the expansion of the kingdom of God, and no exemptions are allowed. No exemptions. No one's 4F you know, in, in, the, in the call to win this world for Jesus. Northridge Life Church, listen to me carefully, will not fully be the church she's been called to be until we fulfill our mandate to both send and to go, however that looks for you individually. But who is it, who is it going to be? Who is it going to be among us right now here this morning that is going to go? Who is it? Who is it? Your temptation might be to look around and say, well, I hope that guy does. I hope she does. She's particularly gifted. Who will go? Is your first reaction to shout out to the heavens, not I, Lord, I just married a wife. I just bought a field. I got people to see and things to do, Lord, surely you understand, not I. Or having seen his glory, do you pant after God and cry out like Isaiah did? Here am I. Here am I. Send me. Send me. Take me. Use me. Use me up, Lord. I spill my blood for your name. It's not too great a cost, Lord. Here am I, send me. Today on the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, I don't want to pay lip service to our brothers and sisters who are around the world who are imprisoned, harassed, tortured, killed for the cause of Jesus. Such a prayer, if we just kind of do it because it's on the calendar to do it, listen to me, such a prayer would be an absolute affront to the holiness of God, and we would be better off not to pray such a prayer. Instead, as Hebrews tells us, Let me encourage you this morning to remember those who are imprisoned. 
Remember those who are mistreated, those who are separated from their families, tortured, even killed. And to remember them, as Hebrews says, as though you're in prison with them. Try to imagine. In fact, do this with me. Just humor me. If you haven't heard a word I said, that's fine. But just humor me. Everybody close your eyes. Get alone with your imagination. And try right now to imagine for a moment not living in a free worshiping society. Imagine that you're always being watched, that you're always under the threat of being reported. Imagine that you could lose your freedom simply for owning the Bible you are holding now in your hand, or even a page or a portion of it. Imagine that. Imagine your husband, your wife, or your children watching you being carted off to a filthy prison in chains with no assurance that they will ever see you again. Sadly, this is not a mere exercise of the imagination. It is absolute reality for most of the Christians living in today in places like China, Nigeria, North Korea, Sudan, Iran, and several other places, too numerous to mention. As you reflect on the reality of that, do you have the guts to ask the Lord if he would have you go to one of those places. Some of you might be genuinely sensing that God is kindling something in you right now. Do not resist it. Do not ignore it. Do not winch it. Others might feel God leading you to the inner cities of Chicago or Detroit or even perhaps a Native American reservation or even a small town in West Texas filled with religious good old boys that desperately need to hear the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't resist it. Don't. At the very least, all of us should reaffirm in this moment of quiet that we belong to God and invite Him to do whatever He will with our lives. 1 Corinthians 6, you have been bought with a price. You are not your own, so glorify God in your body. Jim Elliott, one of my heroes, who was martyred by Horani Indians in Ecuador in 1956, he wrote in his journal seven years earlier, he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Today, as we come to the Lord's table, I want us to remember several things. First, that there are believers all over the world, some in small villages, some in grand cathedrals, some hiding in basements, some even in prison cells that are joining us this morning at this table. We're not doing it alone. They, too, are taking these elements of bread and wine and feasting along with us on Jesus Christ. And we are united this morning. Praise God. We are united by the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 says there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Aren't you glad there's not a Pakistani God, an American God, an Iranian God, a Nigerian God, North Korean God? But there is one God, and he is the God and Father of us all. The same God who got you out of bed this morning and got you saved to church is watching over Ozzy Abibi's life right now. The same God. Next, so remember those, remember those people all over the world. 
And next is I have hopefully passionately appealed to you all morning long. Please, please have the courage this morning to ask God if he would have you go and bring comfort to your suffering brothers somewhere in the world. Or if he would have you bring the gospel somewhere that needs it, that maybe doesn't even have any Christian witness, imprisoned or not. Don't negotiate with him on the when, the where, the how. Just obediently place yourself in his hands and be at his disposal. Some of you, like I said, have that fire kindling in you right now and you're saying, I want to, there's something in me that this might be for me. And I don't even know where to start. Here's where you start. You pray. Second thing is you come talk to us. And I guarantee you, with every, with every you know, thing that we have any influence over, as the elders of this church, we will help you get there. It's that important. We've got we to gotta talk first. You've got to obey first. You've got to say yes first. Some of you might need to start with a neighbor a few feet from your house. Some of you might want to talk to a family member, the one that you really don't want to talk to, or that annoying, profane, godless coworker. But if you start with the willingness to obey, I promise you, you will find joy in God's call. Last, as you partake of the bread and the cup, remember this, what this is truly symbolic of. Remember that Christ was willing to get up from the most comfortable place in all there is and come to you. Going from Texas to Pakistan seems relatively easy compared to going from heaven to earth. But Jesus did it. Remember what his departure cost him. Remember what joy his obedience brought to the Father. Remember what it brought to himself. Remember what his obedience, the joy that it brought to the whole world of those who have believed in him. And some who have even died in him, died in joy because they died in him. I'm going to ask the elders to come forward now. Go ahead, guys. This is what... Paul wrote for us these familiar words. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, This blood is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we particularly slow down this morning and we remember those of our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted this morning. God, we cannot even imagine the suffering that those who share with us in the family of God, those who who share in the covenant of your blood, are suffering this morning. And so, God, we ask that you would be with them, that your presence with them would be strong to encourage them, Lord. We pray that you would sustain them in suffering. We pray that the, that the, the pain and the blood that is spilled would not be in vain, but it would be the greatest evangelistic call of all, Lord God, for others to put their faith and their trust in you, O Lord. God, we pray that you would help them and spare them suffering and torture, Lord God. But if you have decreed that they should endure it, Lord God, I pray that they would endure it in faith, that they would endure it with joy, Lord God. As the Bible gives you as an example that for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross, despising the shame. God, I pray that our brothers and sisters who must endure suffering, 
would endure their cross, despising the shame for the joy that is set before them. God, we pray that those who harass, torture, imprison our brothers and sisters would be so convicted in heart, Lord God, that like the persecutor Saul of Tarsus, they would become followers of you, Lord Jesus. God, we pray that you would let their patient endurance be a great witness for the glory of your name. God, particularly this morning, I pray for our sister, Azia Bibi, Lord God. God, I pray that you would send a legion of angels to to protect her from those who would do her harm, Lord God. God, as she has suffered so much, Lord God, I ask that you would provide a way for her. God, the reward of your, uh, just, just, uh, God, just uh, the beauty of Christ to be revealed to her for her suffering, Lord God. God, come and be near her, Lord God. Encourage her heart, Lord God. God, convict those, Lord God, just like the woman caught in adultery. Let those who would do her harm drop their stones and walk away, Lord God. Help her, Lord Jesus. Encourage her. Strengthen her, Lord God. Let her know that it wasn't for nothing, but that there is laid up for her a crown of righteousness. Thank you, Jesus. God, we pray for ourselves that you would give us all, Lord God, willing hearts, Lord God. God, I pray that where necessary, our blind contentment would be replaced with dissatisfaction in the things that we have collected to ourselves, Lord God. The status, the stuff would just seem so empty and dim, Lord God, if we persist in our disobedience, Lord God. God, I truly believe with all my heart there are people here that you are calling to go to the ends of the earth, Lord God, and many more that you are calling to go across the street. Lord Jesus, give them the courage. Give them the willingness. Shake them from their sleep, Lord God. And God, most of all, shake me from my sleep, Lord God. God, I pray that you would bring an absolute death blow to the things that cause us all to be deaf to your voice, that, that our persistence in idolatry would come to an end as we are able to bring glory to your name. And God, we, as we come to your table now, we come not with sorrowful hearts, but with glad rejoicing in the sacrifice and the triumph of Jesus. That though many of our brothers and sisters are harassed and persecuted and killed, God, we rejoice that the gates of hell still will not prevail against your church, Lord God, because you have built it. And the foundation of this church stands sure, and it is you, O God. You are the foundation, and we cannot be moved in Jesus' name.